Hello and welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, Learning from the Leaders. I am Beth Crackles. This episode was recorded late in January 2020 with Matthew Sherrington of Inspiring Action. He's worked in the sector for 30 years and is now a consultant. He has a fascinating background which started at Oxfam in 1989 as a volunteer and went on to see him support and lead Oxfam teams across the world throughout the 90s. So we chat a bit about that. We also chat about turning around Greenpeace USA in the noughties and some of the similarities and differences between the UK and the States. We also chat about aligning strategy, comms, fundraising and campaigning, a challenge which I feel is just as relevant today. Matthew has some good chat on representation of the people that we support and how organisations need to be honest with themselves about the stories they tell and the balance of power. There's a lot in here. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm chatting with Matthew Sherrington and we're going to do the intro. Matthew is? All about aligning strategy, culture, comms and fundraising. Yeah, I'm that, that is what I'm about. It sounds a bit of a mouthful when you say it, but I am. I'm about aligning things. Aligning things, yeah. I'm Matthew. Oh, Matthew is. <laughs> oh, no, I need a Matthew has. Held all the fundraising and comms jobs at Oxfam. In my opinion, Oxfam might disagree with that, you might disagree with that, but looking back at your LinkedIn, I was like, oh, Matthew did all the jobs in the 90s. I've done some amazing jobs. I mean, Oxfam's a really big place where you learn a lot, so I haven't done all the jobs because there are a lot, but yeah, I was a manager, one of several in fundraising, and I've been the comms director for a while, so yeah, I've done some good stuff at Oxfam. Cool. Okay. Matthew is trustee for Minds Advisory Group. I've actually just finished my six year term, but that was fantastic. I have been a trustee for six years. It's one of the best things I've, I've done, and uh, I'd recommend trusting to anybody. Yeah, yeah. You get a totally different perspective, don't you? Yeah. Matthew is someone who was <laughs> development director at Greenpeace USA for three years in the early noughties. Which just, like, I can't get my head around what that could possibly have been like. So, yeah, should we come back to that? We will come back to it. It was. Um, I was there for four years, actually. Took my family. Brilliant adventure. I'll oh tell you goodness. more. goodness. Matthew is. Has been on the Institute of Fundraising Convention Board for ten years. I have, yeah. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about it. And um, this is my last year, but they've let me stay. So I hope that means I've done some good stuff. Yeah, probably. I think that I think you should probably take that. Matthew is... Easily cajoled into having a pint over a coffee. A pint? You had three gin and apples. Oh, my God. I didn't expect this to reflect back quite so badly on me so early in the podcast. It was a great afternoon. It was a great afternoon. Yeah, it was what? What was it? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Matthew is. Well, yeah, so Matthew does these hashtag on these day tweets. I do. Which are amazing. I do. Yeah. Yeah, do you know what today's is? No. On this day, 1649, Charles I was beheaded. And 11 yes. years later, on this day, 1661, his son Charles II dug up Cromwell's body and had it executed just to be sure it was dead. So there you go. Yeah, I, I'm a, wow. I, I, like, I, like, I like bits of history and bits of quirky history, but that's today's. So now you're a consultant and you've been involved with charities for over 25 years. Yikes. Agency side and charity side. 
Do you want to tell us a bit about where you started out at Oxfam in the 90s? How was that? Well, it was awesome. I started out in 1989, so sort of 30-odd years have been at it. I did medieval history. I spent a year as a volunteer teacher in Sudan because that felt, you know, more interesting thing to do. No one talks about medieval history, so it's why I tweet about it. And I started as a volunteer in Oxfam offices in Oxford, and it was one of those sort of foot in the doors things that could happen then. I, I was volunteering for a, a couple of months and basically doing office work, typing, filing. And I got a first, my first job as a team assistant working on the South Africa desk. Uh, and that was just incredible. For four years, I worked on the South Africa team and became deputy country director. Um, there were three of us, I, I have to say. So there were th- three of us, two of them ran the program and I was responsible for communications and that was a period between Nelson Mandela's release and the election so it was a fascinating time you know I was traveling in and out of South Africa seeing work learning a huge amount seeing a huge amount you know it was a, it was a huge period of transition. What are your sort of key memories from things that you saw or you felt about that experience? Lots of experiences that, that stay with me I think one is the the optimism of people, thats I think that's something that I hold on to now. You know, in, in spite of perhaps a lot of evidence, I, I am, I'm an optimist about human nature and the spirit of people in South Africa having gone through everything they'd gone through and their optimism for the future was incredible. Meeting people just as they'd been released from prison and showing me their torture scars, I remember that. I remember... But I also remember the most amazing community parties where people were celebrating, you know, the opening of their community centre. Mm. There's a place in, in Cape Town called Manenberg and a world famous jazz musician, Abdullah Ibrahim, came back to Cape Town from New York to play. And I was there when that happened and the, and the place was a light. So it's not, it was not all grim and dark. I mean, it was just a huge, huge opportunity. I got the chance to travel around more than probably most South Africans have seen their own country uh, and different sides to it. I learned a huge amount. It was an incredible opportunity. And life experience as well. You're always told that you learn stuff on the job, and yeah, you do, but it does sound like an incredible, broader-than-work life experience that sort of shapes you. Meeting different people, talking... I remember meeting you know, white Africana farmers and talking about their experience, um, talking to white activists about their guilt. We had, I remember a whole, whole car journey conversation about white guilt. And, you know, is that why I did what I did? Is that, you know, because that's what drove him, as well as, as, well as all the black South Africans involved, everything. But th- th- some of those were sort of quite interesting, sort of people who were confronting their their own identity and, and, and reality. And then uh, and other weird things, I mean, Compared to how things work now with health and safety, I mean, the positions we got or the the circumstances we we got ourselves into were remarkable. We we used to travel around solo. This was before the days of mobile phones or email. Um, We were allowed one phone call home a week for five minutes because it costs so much. We're just out there on our own, you know. (laughs) And, um, you know, now nobody would have been allowed to do that without you know, practically going on an SAS mm. survival course, you know, and that's what, that's, yeah, yeah a different world. Yeah. So you were Deputy Director of Commons for South Africa? South Africa, yeah. So the, we were doing a lot of human rights related campaigning around um, forced removals and detentions and land rights and 
doing a lot of um, work around policy, helping organisations engage in policy to move, if you like, from a an anti-apartheid world to a developmental frame. You know, how, how, how does South Africa address its problems rather than just mm. fight apartheid? Um, it's a fascinating time. And then you went on to do some fundraising roles. Yeah, so in 94, you know, the world in South Africa changed. Oxfam was able to open an office for the first time in South Africa. I didn't want to do that, but I'd also been doing that for for five years by then. And I moved to fundraising in a strange way, really. I became the head of the team responsible for statutory and contract funding, which in hindsight was a bit peculiar because I had no direct experience of that, as my team let me know in no small measure. Um, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a highlight of my management life, I have to be honest. <laughs> but but the, logic of, the logic of it was that the team had been put together into the marketing and fundraising department and they wanted a manager who understood communications and marketing, which I did, but then also had some credibility with program and experience. And so I, I fitted the bill. Did okay. I mean, it was it was my first management job, so I learned a lot from that, um, good and bad. But it was the era of you know the Rwanda genocide, yeah. the war in former Yugoslavia, then the wars in the Caucasus, and you know, our statutory income grew dramatically, not because, you know, my team were great, but the circumstances were such that Oxfam's work just grew exponentially. And that's what we were doing. We were negotiating the contracts and, and providing the funding for those huge emergency programs. And that, that, it's, that also was a, a very, well, I mean, it's a hard thing to go back and remember, actually, remembering the stories of people who'd been there at the time, what was going on. The impact on people was um, was quite intense. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Where did you move after that? You were still at Oxfam for a little while. Yeah, no, quite a lot. I mean, that was only half my life. So once I was in the fundraising department, then I had I, I was doing that for about five years, one way or another. I had the opportunity to develop. I mean, around that sort of time, Oxfam invested hugely in leadership and management. There was a new management. A uh, new chief exec and new management team, and it was a big organisation, and sort of really was, I think, one of the first charities to realise that you know it had to invest in management. It, you know, mm. it couldn't just be an amateurish style charity. And I was fortunate to be there when that happened. And um, there was, you know, the, a big management development program was put in place, and sixty or seventy managers were put through it, and I was one of those. So I learned a huge amount. Again, I was really, really lucky to have mm. that sort of investment in my own management development. You know, that's one of the things I think big, big charities um, can do for the sector at large. You know, it sort of grows experience. I mean, I, I, I look around now and I've, I've probably got half a dozen close friends from Oxfam Days who are now chief execs of other charities and their fundraising directors. And, you know, and, and we all learned a, a huge amount. But I really, what, what I got out of that was I really enjoyed management and training through communications. And, and so I became part of, they called it the faculty. It sounded rather pompous, but it was deliberate. An internal group of managers, and we were trained to then deliver the training. So I sort of became a part of a core internal team of managers that was there to foster the management development, which was, was also fascinating. And because of that experience, going back to the fundraising thing, I was asked to move over sideways to temporarily manage direct marketing team, the supporter acquisition team, because a manager had left and the team needed some care. 
So I was a caretaker manager of direct marketing. It's like, well, wow. I remember my manager telling me, saying, you know, you've got no experience in this, so you're only here for three months. Don't get too excited, which is like a bit of a downer. But I did get hugely excited. And I had a team who were brilliant and worked with an agency that was brilliant. And um, I loved it, actually. I ended up winning the job. I won the job when it came up for interview. And that was fantastic. So I, I had three years in the heyday of, you know, supporter recruitment, mm. when everything worked, you know, we were doing door drops. I mean, it's awful to think back, you know, but all of that sort of high volume direct mail and, and stuff, everything was working and we were doing everything that we could because the mission needed it. Also, I was first DRTV. I was involved in making some of the first DRTV ads. Uh, it was an incredible period. It's incredible that you were basically put in to manage various different income streams without experience of those income streams previously. Uh, Yes. I mean, I was was there at the right time. I wouldn't claim to have much to do there. I sort of landed on my feet and having the opportunity to be involved in certain things. I was in South Africa when we made the very first TV ad, uh, Fish, Mm. Give a Man a Fish which was groundbreaking. But I was there because of my South Africa program experience. I was basically there as a, as a mascot and a fixer to make sure that everything ran okay because I knew my way around the country and people were nervous. So that, that was sort of rather funny. And then a couple of years later, I was responsible for DRTV and we went out there. And But I was also the first, I, I, I made the decision to stop filming ads and start using real film you know, because they were expensive to make. It was how they were done then. But uh, it didn't feel authentic. The early ones used actors. Mm. That's how TV ads were made. And to shift and say, actually, we need to use real footage and make it out of, you know, how do we do that? We made the first one um, doing that, which was also quite interesting. And pretty topical for now as well. Yeah, and I I mean, I think that, that whole issue around representation has been live forever bits of it i find uncomfortable i mean they are they are uncomfortable sometimes i think the challenge can be unfair the reality of a tv ad for example is that you have 60 90 seconds and fewer than 100 words to tell a story in a strong enough way for people to respond Mm. to it and so when that's going through the organization on paper and as a script of course everybody thinks it's rubbish and superficial and thin and they throw in hundred more words well you've only got the room for this amount so generally program people would hate the tv ads but i can remember showing them to program colleagues in addis ababa and in harare and zimbabwe and people liking them and saying well yeah that's sort of reflective of life and the world Mm -hmm. and i think in the discussion now i think there's um it's really important the question of representation and dignity and whose voice I think quite a lot about that but on the other hand I think an organization has to think about whose story it's there to support so I think it is unfair on international organizations international charities to be challenged on only telling part of the story for example of Africa and Africa is sort of dramatically different it's not a homogenous place it's 50 countries it's got dramatic economic growth in certain places And yet, you know, an organisation like Oxfam is still there needing to work with the people at the bottom Mm. and their reality remains intense poverty. So that remains a a truth or a story for them that needs telling. Yeah, there is Um, a lot of challenge about Africa as a continent having very vibrant, multicultural, incredible cities when the representation question comes up. But yeah, absolutely, there's still a lot of need and that needs conveying as well. 
There's also something that I think is is important in this debate, and it's for organisations to be honest about their own agenda. It can be quite easy language to say, you know, we're here to give voices to people. And that's right. You know, if you've got a platform, how do you make that available for, for other people? But more often than not, you're still making the choice of who you give that platform to. Whose voices are you sharing? Mm -hmm. And there will tend to be voices that you agree with or reflect the story you're wanting to convey. They're going to be people whose work you're funding because it fits with your approach. And that's not a bad thing, but it's important to then have an honesty that you retain a power. You retain power in that dynamic and in a conversation around how do we give that away? How do we make that more accessible for others who don't have power? This is a really difficult thing to, to navigate and it's important to acknowledge that there is always power in that dynamic mm. do you have consultancy work or consultancy roles that require you to have those conversations with leaders in organizations that's an interesting point i don't know that it comes up that much in in my work i mean I, i'd like it to I think it's been a passion of mine and i i guess i've seen outlets for it through the work i've done with the institute of fundraising convention sort of the, the tracks i've been responsible for wanting those debates to exist I haven't done it for a couple of years, but I blogged a lot for a while on 101 fundraising and third sector and would explore these themes there. Most of my consulting now is more communications than fundraising and more leadership. I mean, I've got much more interested in how organisations work and helping organisations become better. And so, you know, a lot of experience I've had working with big organisations, with Oxfam or Greenpeace, and when I was in the agency side for a few years and consulting with big, big charities also, is I understand or have got experience of how organisations operate, both good and bad. You know, they're complex, but I know what good looks like. To be honest, I, I think I can help smaller organisations, mid-sized organisations more than bigger ones, because you can see little things that they could do better and it would make a huge difference to them. Yeah. So, you know, a lot, a lot of the consulting I do is is around narrative and storytelling and around structure. Storytelling sounds a bit wishy-washy. Some people might call it brand. I call it narrative and identity. How do you really make sure that an organisation is clear on its purpose, that its programmatic strategy is lined up to that, that its communications then is lined up to that, that helps the organisation have a good case for support and is able to communicate what it does really well what it's about really well how do you then help people inside the organization understand that story often organizations fall over with, with internal stories they forget that their staff are a key stakeholder and assume everybody's going to get mm -hmm. it a lot of organizations i don't think do that well enough uh, from the top from the leadership mm -hmm. so really remembering that you, you're there to lead a story lead an organizational mission uh, and I get very excited about that. We talk a lot about impact uh, as a sector. And I find that problematic because I think it can result in talking about the difference from a particular transactional thing. We do this, we spend this, this is what happens. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference made. And a longer term thing, I think, we, you know, we need to talk more about progress. We need to talk more about momentum. Milestones is a horrible internal juggling word, but it's how do we show people that we're moving forward? And sometimes that means we have missteps. Not everything works. And that's also part of that journey. The task of motivating supporters, this is where things come together for me, is fundraising communications are in the business of inspiring people to part with money, to join campaigns, to feel part of something because they believe it's worth it. Mm. And that same discipline applies to 
people inside, how you apply that to leadership. How do you lead people and help them feel, make sure they feel the same? Because if they don't feel it, they won't project it. Mm. That's how I see things coming together. So most of my work is around helping organisations think about that and, and how that looks practically is, I, you know, at the moment I'm doing an interim, so I'm helping an organisation with strategy and ways of working. I do coaching, I do facilitation, I do projects. I even like writing appeals, mm. you know. I love copywriting. <laughs> and I do, I do training. I mean, one of the things that I've started in the last few years, four or five times a year, I do a session on the Leadership Development Programme at the Ministry of Defence <laughs> Leadership Academy. So I run a session on using narrative in leadership you know, military leaders and civil service leaders and secret service even. It's fantastic. That sounds fascinating. I love that they find relevance in charity experience of um, communications and values. So what are your top tips for leaders around using narrative in leadership? Getting some free consultancy now. What's about being, being focused and simple? So being clear on the mission and the purpose. What is the purpose you're, you're going for and how easily can you articulate that? Then I think it's about being focused and disciplined about sticking to that story. So editing is, I think, a key function of effective communications and also a key function of good strategy that less is more. If we did more of fewer things, we'd have more impact on fewer things. And what organisations tend to do is add things on and spread wide and dissipate their impact. Mm. So I think from a leader, it's how do you keep your organization focused? Uh, how do you make effective decisions based on priorities? And that means how do you help your organization stop doing things in order to do more important things if your resources are limited? Mm. In communications terms, that's editing. The most important choices are what to cut out. The same with strategy. Once you've got that mission focus, the second is the discipline and making decisions and priorities around it. And then the third is to keep telling that story. It may feel repetitive, but actually it helps people understand what you're doing and you keep coming back to that your updates are against that everything that you achieve as an organization you frame against that story I really like the most important thing is what you cut out I feel that that's very true to how I think about strategy it's not about deciding what you do it's about deciding what not to do if your challenge is tackling poverty there are so many different things that need to come together to make that happen one organization can't do all of those things so where are you best placed to do it and where are others best placed to do things and how can you tackle it together I guess we don't have unlimited resources and time so we can't do everything you know in fundraising terms it's why we focus on the activities that deliver the best return on investment you know, you could still make money doing something over there. But if you could make more over here, then do that. Don't try and do both. I can remember when I was at Oxfam and responsible for events, cutting. I was, you know, when I look back, I think, well, gosh, those are quite bold things. But we had a couple of big events or big activities that I was responsible for cutting. And one was Oxfam's raffle. You know, it made several hundred thousand pounds, but it cost a few hundred thousand pounds and the return was not that great and it absorbed a huge amount of time and energy and which we could spend on other mm. things and another was Oxfam week once a week you get volunteers walking door to door and um, collecting money off their neighbors and it was a big thing we were one of very few charities that had the the rights to do that you had to, a license and you had to be a big enough organization but it 
was hugely ineffective in mobilising volunteers. Now, in a world of digital and social media, of course, you'd do it like a shot. It'd be fantastic. But back then, mm. it was a dog, so we cut it. <laughs> and I think it applies, too, to your personal ways of working. You know, the, when I'm coaching, the biggest issue that comes up every time is workload and prioritisation and decision-making. You have to prioritise and you have to let certain things go. And if you don't have the authority to make that decision... How do you go up the line to present the options? Mm. Can we move on and talk about you at Greenpeace in the States? How did the job come about? I was working at Oxfam very happily at that point. I was doing a role with Oxfam International. I was Oxfam International's first global marketing manager, sort of helping different country teams develop. It was a great couple of years, I have to tell you. I sort of got to go to Japan and India um, helping teams look at their fundraising and, and, and so on. And I happened to be on holiday with friends in Scotland. Good friends of ours uh, had recently gone to China with BSO. We had kids the same age. So they were, we were sort of, you know, thinking, gosh, you know, um, if we were to do something exciting like that, you know, kids are the same age. Anyway, we were in Scotland and my partner Catherine and one of our friends, Anna, saw the, the Greenpeace ad in the guardian i kid you not the fundraising director for greenpeace america was in the guardian and it just became sort of a holiday a week away holiday joke that oh matthew you should apply for that and it's like yeah right but anyway by the time we got home the decision we made that i would i i had a friend uh ex-oxfam friend of course ex-oxfam who was the fundraising director for greenpeace in the uk i called her and said why is this in the guardian why is the u.s advertising in, mm. in, in britain is it is it a shit job? And she said, yes. No one in the US <laughs> would touch it. What's, um, what's the worst that can happen is that you can go over there, make a complete mess of it, and no one would know. Um, anyway, it was too good a chance to miss out, and I won it. So we moved our family, our two kids and a cat, went to Washington, D.C. We were there for four years. An amazing family adventure, I have to say. We, we made the most of being in the States. We loved being in America. And I learned a huge amount with Greenpeace. I was a Brit in America. That was exciting. I'd come from Oxfam where I realised just how much I had learned at Oxfam. Mm. I think most people go through life sort of, we've talked about it, sort of imposter syndrome and so on, where you're never worthy or you never feel you're good enough. And organisational pressures mean there's, you can always be better. Oxfam has that. You know, everybody wants to do better because that's the world we, we're in. I left Oxfam and joined Greenpeace which is a great organisation in its own right, but was not as sophisticated in management or culture. And I just realised how, well, it's going to sound weird, but just how good I was in terms mm. of what I'd learned and knew how to do things. And I was able to make quite a lot of difference to Greenpeace in the US as a leader beyond fundraising as, as part of the management team. And I really, really enjoyed that. And then I learned a huge amount, you know, as I said, sort of, the reputation was that it was a shit job. And that's because Greenpeace had been really difficult times in the States. It had been declining for 10 years and, you know, little sight of coming out of that. And so a lot of pressure from Greenpeace International for, for performance and so on. Why was it deemed to be a shit job? I mean, the external factors was were, you know, in terms of environmentalism and the US, uh, you know, here and in Europe, Greenpeace is a fairly respected organisation when it comes to speaking about environmental issues mm. and so on, and one of, one of the largest voices. In the US, it's not. I mean, there are 20 environmental organisations larger than Greenpeace in the yeah. US. 
And politically, you know, well, Greenpeace in terms of values and approach is exactly the same in Europe and the US. The political, social context in the US is dramatically further to the right, mm. which means, you know, Greenpeace's space, put it in contextually, a, a, a further left space, if you like. You yeah. know, and therefore much more niche in terms of uh, public interest or support. So its opportunity for engaging people was, was lower. But then internally, it had been going through financial troubles. And so internally, it was desperately trying to turn around its fundraising. And that's why that was so difficult. But we did it. I remember going to a fundraising conference, the AFP, in my first year and bumping into Ken Burnett and Tony Elisher and Daryl Upsall, all teasing me, basically, for picking up the Greenpeace job. They'd all been there. They'd all tried to help them. And it was a basket case, basically. <laughs> but it took being there. You know, you couldn't do it as a consultant. And I take that on board now I, I consult is you have to work closely to embed changes. You can't just come in and present the diagnosis. I learned a lot about integrating fundraising and campaigning where a lot of my passion around aligning things mm. comes from. You know, it was a campaigning organisation and yet fundraisers were kept to one side, donors were for the money, but activists did the campaigning. It was, made no sense to me. I mean, people join Greenpeace as a campaigning organisation. Of course, they want to be able to participate. So, you know, we brought campaigning more front and centre with our supporter communications. Tension improved. That was fantastic. And then the biggest thing, I think, was we launched face-to-face uh, -face fundraising in the, in, the, in the US. We were working with an agency that didn't really work, so we brought it in-house. And in 18 months, we were in eight cities. We had 200 fundraisers on the street. And we worked it so that, I mean, this is part of that integration thing. Again, no one joins Greenpeace to be a fundraiser. Mm. So they were <laughs> they were campaigning teams as well as fundraising yeah. teams. And, you know, they had to meet the fundraising targets before we allowed them to get close to campaigning activity. But people were pumped up and motivated. And, you know, I, I can remember towards the end, I was visiting our teams in different cities and they were highly motivated groups of people on the streets taking the Greenpeace message out. I mean, you couldn't do it in England, but, you know, I can remember pumping up teams before they went on the street, you know, shouting, I am Greenpeace, I am Greenpeace, because Amazing. they felt it. And that was what I was trying to convey to them. It's like, you are the, you are the organisation. You're not raising money for the organisation. People are meeting Greenpeace when they meet mm. you. So feel it, believe it, be passionate. And it was awesome. So that was, that was, I could go on. It was just great. That's amazing. Great. I've just listened to Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast with Pippa Grange, who's like the psychologist and culture coach or something behind the England team, or was. She's just incredible to hear from. And she was talking about how um, before, like, the the england football team go out onto the pitch how there's lots of sort of like body contact and like really noisy yeah. really boisy and then they go into the tunnel and it's absolute silence and she talks about yeah. how they are as a team and how they build each other up and the oxytocin and all of that kind of stuff and how it influences culture and how they are as individuals and a team so it's, yeah. it's really interesting that you you were talking about like almost a similar thing with street fundraisers goes back to what I was talking about earlier about, you know, how do you help your teams connect to the mission and mm. feel that it matters and it's part of it? And I remember being in Portland, I visited a team in Portland and 
they'd be, been out on the street. I went out, I was rubbish, but you know, joined them and uh, came back to the office and they were totting up and they were one donor short of their target for the day. And they just said, right, off we go. And they went out <laughs> and they went out until one, they got one more, it took them 20 minutes and then they were back. It was just like, then we had the pizza. It was just yeah. brilliant, brilliant. I came back from the States with this cachet of, you know, having been a Brit in America, having turned Greenpeace around, having done interesting things around integrating fundraising mm. and campaigning. I mean, it's really, really interesting now. I really enjoy paying attention to Paul de Gregorio, mm. who's passionate about US politics and learning for communications and movement building around US politics. I was learning the same sort of things, obviously a different context in terms of digital area, but the same sort of things when I was in the States that... You know, there was a lot of thinking then that people who engaged with you online were did, were different. They were, oh, Greenpeace even called them cyber activists. If you communicated them by email, they were cyber activists. It's like insane. <laughs> it sounds sinister in um, some way as well. But, yeah. But I think the lessons from US political campaigning was that, again, it was just a communications tool and the, and the real potential, the real power was how do you mobilise people through different channels online to get real in the real world and do things in the real world. And our supporter engagement was was doing that. We were getting people together in different cities and they would be doing, sometimes it would be, you know, little banner events maybe, but sometimes it would be doing mm. bake sales, you know, a bake sale to save the whales. <laughs> and that was something that we did. We had one day where everybody was making blue whale-shaped cakes and selling, making money, you know, and mm. that was in the real world. Feels like a good moment to plug the iof convention session that paul de gregorio is running <laughs> with cat sladden <laughs> yeah not that i'm biased at all because it's on the future of fundraising track <laughs> that i've been working on but and yeah he and cat are going to be talking about people power mobilizing people and the focus is the grenfell tragedy the sort of movement building post grenfell and what charities can learn from that so i think um we're all quite excited about that one yeah, I'd be very excited, very excited about that. A key thing for organisations, particularly big ones, which has been, been a bit of a mantra for me over the last years, is the problem of institutional ego, as I call it. You know, the organisations get concerned about their brand profile and their support mm. base and the pressures of raising money and needing them to be part of the story, when that's not the way people want to in, interact, really. And I think organisations need to check themselves and and see how do how do they facilitate stuff mm. how, how do they enable to do what they want to do i can't remember who i'm quoting here but somebody referred to it as like facilitating the heroes a charity's role is not to get people to do stuff for your organization but to facilitate other people to be able to do stuff that will help change the world i think that's right and i think going back to that question around power and representation with international development if you like that that's that, that's part of the existential question that international ngos face now is you know largely grown out of a post-colonial desire to help and support countries but with that comes a degree of mm. paternalism and to a degree superiority in terms of expertise you know in the 60s you know joke that you know Oxfam's workers were you know white men in shorts plumbers you know doing water engineering and so on it might have been but you know at that time that was perhaps necessary but world's changed where organizations are are located and how they work mm. has changed dramatically and yet 
there is a, there is a power thing. And then how do you make sure that the agency and the power and the hero, if you like, of the people around the world doing what they need to do and you're supporting that? And then how do you locate supporters in that story where you're also wanting them to feel that they're making a difference? And yet the very act of tr- giving money might be well-intentioned, but the transfer of money is also yeah. loaded with power. It's a thorny <laughs> yeah. one. I wanted to move on and talk about making sure that charities aren't sort of perceived to be the mouthpiece of government. I think there are actually other areas where this is a bigger concern. You know, when you look at a lot of large domestic social service charities in the UK, some of them can be 90% funded by Mm. government or local authorities. And there the discussion around, you know, to what degree are you an independent charity delivering your mission? To what degree are you a subcontractor delivering government services? It's an issue that isn't isn't explored too much. So it's quite interesting in recent years where you know the likes of Scope have decided to give up its service delivery and move back to campaigning because it felt that the contracting system, as far as I understand their, their decision making, the contracting system was forcing them to deliver substandard mm. services money available and so it reaches a point where in all conscience they couldn't do that and i think that's that that starts to beg the questions about how do you remain independent in the states working for greenpeace you must have got quite a bit of experience or or real life understanding of the difference in approach in terms of philanthropy sort of cultural differences there Two big differences, um, I guess. One is more general to fundraising, which, you know, the US being such a massive market, most of their fundraising was and probably still remains the heavy direct mail, wider use of telemarketing than in the UK, and increasingly it will be digital, whereas in UK at the time we were using TV and face-to-face and loads of things. So so I think on that level... Um, tactically very different. In terms of cultural stuff around philanthropy, I think this comes up a lot, particularly around major donor differences and, you know, that boards behave differently. Boards are there to raise money in the States and that's not how they're seen here. They're, you know, more governance. And having been a trustee, I I actually think that's appropriate. I think culturally there are some things around American history, if you like, and you know the American dream, the way people are a bit more entrepreneurial, and the, 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 what comes with that is, I think, a greater ingrained sense of giving back if you do well. Um, and so people do. More people in America give to their universities. More people are churchgoers, so that might be part of it. But essentially, people, if they do well, they will give. And um, so that is a factor. Uh, and then there are tax breaks in the States, you know, that, that uh, gift aid comes to the charity in the UK. But in the US, the tax break goes back to the individual and that becomes part of tax planning, gift planning and part of the consideration. So you have wealthier people who um, will give more. They can afford to give more and, you know, they're incentivized to give more. And there's a culture of, of doing that. I'm sure there are things to learn in approach, certainly, definitely both ways. It's interesting that you said the way that the UK is mostly focused on governance is is the right approach. Mm. I know I've been somewhere where there's been uh, someone from the States on the board and this person gave at at quite a significant level, Mm. really, for that organisation and other people didn't. And And I felt like at times it caused a bit of a, it was sort of like a bit 
uncomfortable for other members of the board. Um, but I guess that was where that person had come from. She culturally, that was that was what you do. But part of me does think that if you are passionate about something to the point where you're happy to be a trustee, surely you could set up a five pound a month direct debit as well. You know. Oh yeah, I think I think there are two levels. Though. I mean, on that level, absolutely. I, I I would think any trustee should give money. I mean, I, I actually don't, you know wonder about employees of charities. Um, you know, not not as an enforced thing, but I couldn't work for a charity, never have, and not given to it. I mean, you, as a fundraiser, you have to you have to represent the cause to donors, and of course, you've got to put your money where your mouth is, if you like. Being able to contribute something is, is important. The, the distinction I guess I'd make is that in the US, for some big boards, the whole point of the board is to network and give money or get money by networking. And the governance yeah. piece is, is less, less a, a consideration. Whereas I think for running organisations, you know, what that does, is it, it can become, I guess, an extreme quite elitist and not very diverse and not very representative, you don't bring mm. skills into the room, which you need, I think. That's why, um, you know, I would put governance and the professional skills need to help run an organisation first. And, and if if you do have a strategy around major gifts and, and networking, there are other models to do that, where you create development yeah. boards and put them outside the governance model. Yeah, absolutely. Right, let's move on to the last question, which is, is there a book person or ethos that has inspired your work yeah um i'm hoping it's going to be george the fourth or something i like big figures inspirational big figures so you know it might it might sound an obvious one with my south africa background but i've always had a soft spot for the inspiration of nelson mandela i saw him once in a car park in johannesburg and that was a thrill um <laughs> I, 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 I make this joke that it sort of rooted me to the spot. It was just me and Nelson Mandela in the car park and I stood rock still. But, you know, the truth was it was me, Nelson Mandela and two heavies. And that's why I stood <laughs> rock still. Yeah, I didn't move. Yeah, Nelson Mandela, I think just, you know, the, the inspiration of principle. More, more widely, though, I think uh, an ethos is something we touched on earlier is about um, people, people power and what I think of as um, being an optimist about human nature and believing people want to do good. And I guess I believe that. And it's um, it's what we do in charity communications is wanting to inspire and excite people about the possibility of what they can do in the world. And I think that's part of good leadership inside organisations as well, is uh, how, do you unleash, how do you unleash people's potential and their power to, to do what they can, whether it's empowerment or development and, and, and so on. And um, that's what I get excited about now. I help organisations get better. I like to think I help people get better. And yeah, that's what I that's that's what I get most re- reward from. I think that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you very much. Well, that's great. If we've ended, that's but that's been a fabulous chat. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Here are my key learnings from the chat. Firstly, it reinforced for me that strategy development is just as much about deciding what not to do as well as what you do and how. I think this is incredibly important for organisations tackling complex health, social or environmental issues. And there are some great examples of organisations in the same space working together but in different ways towards a shared goal. Kate Collins, Chief Exec of Teenage Cancer Trust, for example, and a previous guest on here, talks about how young people's cancer charities are working together 
and it's well worth a listen. Secondly, as we live in an increasingly digital world, we need to consider how we use digital tools and techniques to mobilise people to come together and take action in the real world. As Matthew said, it's worth following Paul de Gregorio as he's doing some really cool stuff in this area. And finally, I absolutely love Matthew's ethos of being an optimist about human nature. It's a wonderful turn of phrase and I think we could all learn something from that. Thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe over at iTunes or SoundCloud or you can follow my blog on my website bethcrackles.com for more. Hope to catch you next time.